Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. This is Mark Manson's Theory of Personal Development, and I've actually met Mark Manson. As I wrote about in my book, I was almost robbed in Medellin, Colombia, on my way to get dinner with him. And obviously, I'm a guy who's interested in kind of networking my way up, right? And self-promotion, of course. So you might think that given the fact that I'm kind of in the same space as him and that I have actually met him, that I would just gush positive about the subtle art. But actually, I've got some fair criticisms to level at this book and I'm not even sure if I recommend it. This book, while entertaining and well-written, typifies a problem with the self-help sphere of literature, which is lack of rigorous empiricism. So all too often, authors are mere theorists and not practitioners. What'll happen is they'll have an idea about how you should live your life, how you should think, mindset, that sort of thing. And they'll have a couple of defining personal moments and anecdotes which confirm this and then they'll enshrine it in literature as a self-help recommendation for everyone else. Then selection bias, the way that the internet helps people gravitate to us, helps people gravitate to ideas, selection bias will kick in and people will find them who have a bunch of random experiences that are also confirmatory of their what they're espousing. And they might not be wrong. What they're advising might not be totally useless, but this is far from an empirical approach. An empirical approach would involve a statistically significant uh, data points confirming something with evidence and controls, and ideally it should also involve clinical environments, clinical research that's been done. I'll give you an example of how crappy, really crappy personal development advice could be enshrined into self-help dogma. So several times in my life, I have really procrastinated on bureaucratic, paperwork, legal, waiting in state offices to pay fees kinds of things. I've just let things go for way too long. And in a few cases, it actually worked out for the best for me. Like when I was in Colombia, lived there for a couple of years, and instead of going through that tricky, difficult, expensive process of getting the proper residence visa to live there as an American guy, I just procrastinated and overstayed my tourist visa. And luckily, there was no great consequences for that. Eventually, when I wanted to leave, I turned myself into the 
immigration authorities, I apologized, received a slap on the wrist, and then just kind of went about my business. And I could take this experience and a couple of others like it, and I could wordsmith a really persuasive and witty book all about the greatness of procrastination. Call it the subtle art of procrastinating. But the truth is that procrastination is a pretty bad thing. It, you, almost, you almost always want to avoid it. You know, you think about like, think about like a 38-year-old guy who still lives with his mom in his mom's basement, and he's never really gotten properly motivated and ambitious. He's never really had a real job, and he just lives on uh, Burger King and pizza and Coca-Cola, and he's a really frustrated 38-year-old virgin because he's also addicted to porn and video games. That guy can thank procrastination, can't he? And that guy might, one night as he's scrolling through YouTube, come across a catchy, witty YouTube video that I could make about the greatness of procrastination, and he'd say to myself, I knew it. I knew procrastination was the right thing to do. I'm going to just keep procrastinating, and life will just work out for the best somehow for me. I think that self-help gurus should look closely at clinical evidence, look at study design, and look at you know data, multiplicity of studies when they are making their recommendations. And this is because often we are wrong. Even smart, articulate, fairly read people, we are often wrong. Our minds confabulate narratives of what went wrong and what went right in our lives that often are totally rational and divorced from reality. This is why definitely popular writers, self-help guru types, should have a multiplicity of anecdotes coming from a diversity of people that are underlying their recommendations. I see like a pickup artist coach as more credible who has worked with dozens or hundreds of students over the years in a real-world environment. I find their uh, conclusions and recommendations when it comes to, say, psychology or whatever, a lot more credible than someone who is just noting some commonalities between their own personal dating experiences. The subtle art doesn't include a single footnote, uh, link, or case study that comes from clinical research backing up its ideas. The book has a number of amusing anecdotes from the author's childhood, from his rowdy life as a digital nomad, but beyond that, I just didn't see that much evidence that was in there for his counterintuitive approach. And he's probably right about a number of things. I wouldn't say that this book is something to just be thrown out and totally ignored, but it is disappointing to see a book 
this popular that it looks like a lot of people are taking as gospel truth, lacking this rigor. An example of what I think is kind of crappy advice arising out of this non-rigorous approach. He's talking about his wife here, quote, nights before we go out, she comes out of the bathroom after an hour long makeup hair clothes, whatever women do in their session and asks me how she looks. She's usually gorgeous. Every once in a while though, she looks bad. Maybe she tried to do something new with her hair or decided to wear a pair of boots from some flamboyant fashion designer from Milan that thought, were, that thought they were avant-garde. Whatever the reason, it just doesn't work. When I tell her this, she usually gets pissed off as she marches back into the closet or the bathroom to redo everything and make us 30 minutes late. She spouts a bunch of four-letter words and sometimes even slings a few of them in my direction. Men stereotypically lie in this situation to make their girlfriends or wives happy, but I don't. Why? Because honesty in my relationship is more important to me than feeling good all the time. The last person I should ever have to censor myself with is the woman who I love. So he advocates categorical honesty to the point of pissing off his wife after she spent time dolling herself up to look good and she ends up disrespecting him and insulting him as a result. This makes zero sense to me. And it makes me wonder, is there a clinical study out there of uh, marriages? I know there's tons of studies out there on behavior within marriages. Is there a clinical study that shows that it actually results in greater marital tranquility if you are autistically honest about really superficial things like a wife lathering on just a bit too much makeup or a husband mismatching his socks. This seems like something that you really should not give a fuck about. Further, I think that absolute honesty is a pretty questionable idea. As Mark has written about before in other uh, you know, well-read viral blog posts, our feelings are often misguided and wrong. And you're not going to have functional relationships if you are narcissistically committed to expressing your feelings at every juncture. I'll give you an example of this. There's this friendly guy at the grocery store where I shop weekly and we chit chat and he knows that I'm some type of internet entrepreneur guy. And the other day I was in there and he was like, man, you know what? I'm going to start a internet business with my friends. Can I pick your brain a little bit about this? So I was like, sure. Yeah, we can get coffee and maybe I can give you a little bit of feedback. But imagine if I was categorically committed to absolute honesty and expressing my feelings. I would be like, you are a chubby 40-year-old working at a grocery store. Your friends are probably idiots. 
you probably don't have what it takes to cut it as an entrepreneur. And then instead of a friend, I would have an enemy at the checkout stand every time I was there picking up my coconuts and yogurt. It seems to me that especially when it comes to our most important relationships, we should be honest in a tactful way when it comes to our most important values. But when it comes to the small things, maybe it's okay to have some little white lies here and there. The lack of rigorous research is my primary uh, criticism of this book. So I'll go on to cover some of the good redeeming things about it. The feedback loop from hell. Quote, there's an insidious quirk to your brain that if you let it, can drive you absolutely batty. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. You get anxious about confronting somebody in your life. That anxiety cripples you and you start wondering why you're so anxious. And now you're becoming anxious about being anxious. And this is something that we have all experienced, but I really don't experience it very much since I've gotten serious in the previous, I don't know, four or five years about doing mindfulness, doing meditation. When you take your meditation seriously, you have just a higher degree of control over your thoughts and emotions, and you're able to move beyond these negative cycles as you, as you desire. I wish you would have talked a bit more about meditation in the book. And what he advises is kind of the stoic approach, which is when you have these negative emotions, this anxiety or whatever, just approach it directly. Just kind of do it an exercise, maybe a visualization exercise in your mind where you're imagining yourself coming face to face with that anxiety or whatever that negative emotion is. And when you do this, you realize that it's really not that big of a deal. Quote, by not giving a fuck that you feel bad, you short circuit the feedback loop from hell. You say to yourself, I feel like shit, but who gives a fuck? And then as if sprinkled by magic, fuck giving fairy dust, you stop hating yourself for feeling so bad. Next, he mentions positivity obsession. Because here's the, th the thing that's wrong with all of the how to be happy shit that's been shared 8 million times on Facebook in the past few years. Here's what nobody realizes about all of this crap. The desire for more positive experience is itself a negative experience. And paradoxically, the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience. Interesting thing to think about. He also writes about how social media hijacks our happiness. Back in grandpa's day, he would feel like shit and say to himself, gee whiz, I sure do feel like a cow turd today. But hey, I guess that's just life. Back to shoveling hay. But now, now if you feel like shit for even five minutes, you're bombarded with 350 images of people totally happy and having amazing fucking lives. 
and it's impossible to not feel like there's something wrong with you. And this is why I use a bunch of filters on social media. I use things like the Facebook newsfeed eradicator, and I'm real selective about who I follow on applications like Instagram, which is a social network that is particularly designed to really stimulate that uh, most self-sabotaging of, uh, of human emotions, that jealousy and that envy. And as I talked about in another video, social media is especially effective at hijacking women's evolutionary psychology. And if you're not convinced that social media is really a problem for your mental health, well, you could take a break from, from social media and you'll, you'll feel pretty good. And uh, there's also a documentary that came out recently called Plugged In that my friend Richard, Ga Richard Gannon produced. And I recommend that you talk, that you check that out. He also notes that suffering, human suffering, is a feature, not a bug. Here's why. I see practical enlightenment as becoming comfortable with the idea that some suffering is always inevitable that no matter what you do, life is comprised of failure, loss, regrets, and even death. We are wired to become dissatisfied with whatever we have and satisfied by only what we do not have. This constant dissatisfaction has kept our species fighting and striving, building and conquering. So no, our pain and misery aren't a bug of human evolution. They are a feature. Just as one must suffer physical pain to build stronger bone and muscle, one must suffer emotional pain to develop greater emotional resilience, a stronger sense of self, increased compassion, and generally have a happier life. On values. If you want to change how you see your problems, you have to change what you value or how you measure failure or success. Good values are one, reality-based, two, socially constructive, and three, immediate and controllable. Bad values are superstitious, self-destructive, and not immediate or controllable. This, in a nutshell, is what self-improvement is really about, prioritizing better values, choosing better things to give a fuck about on choosing your problems. When we feel that we're choosing our problems, we feel empowered. When we feel that our problems are being forced upon us against our will, we feel victimized and miserable. On victimhood. Victimhood chick is in style on both the right and left today. Among both the rich and the poor, in fact, this may be the first time in human history that every single demographic group has felt unfairly victimized simultaneously, and we're all riding the highs of the moral indignation that comes along with it. Like Mark, I'd urge you to reject the victim mindset. Unfortunate events, social forces, and other people are 
always going to be there, putting you at some type of disadvantage. And while these things might not be your fault, they are your responsibility. It's up to you to deal with these disadvantages, make the most of them. And it's incredibly disempowering. It keeps you a victim to wallow in self-pity and blame. On entitlement. The gravity of entitlement sucks all attention inward toward ourselves, causing us to feel as though we are at the center of all of the problems in the universe, that we are the one suffering all the injustices, that we are the one who deserves greatness over all others. And he does a section on the enemy of growth, and I thought this was very insightful. The enemy of personal growth is certainty. That's right. Instead of striving for certainty, we should be in constant search of doubt. Doubt about our own beliefs, doubt about our own feelings, doubt about what the future may hold for us unless we get out there and create it for ourselves. For individuals to feel justified in doing horrible things to other people, they must feel an unwavering certainty in their own righteousness, in their own beliefs and deservedness. And then on identity, he talks about identity. He says identity and certainty, they go hand in hand. And he recommends not being too married to an identity as it closes you off to transformation and growth. And he gives a Manson's law of avoidance, which is the more something threatens your identity, the more you will avoid it. I don't say find yourself. I say never know who you are because that's what keeps you striving and discovering. And it forces you to remain humble in your judgments and accepting the differences in others. He talks about freedom in commitment, which I found interesting. The big story for me personally over the past few years has been my ability to open myself up to commitment. I've chosen to reject all but the very best people and experiences and values in my life. I've committed to one woman for the long haul and to my surprise, have found this more rewarding than any of the flings, trysts, and one-night stands I had in the past. And what I've discovered is something entirely counterintuitive, that there is freedom and liberation in commitment. I've found increased opportunity and upside in rejecting alternatives and distractions in favor of what I've chosen to let truly matter to me. I've made a similar transition in the last couple of years from being a slow traveler, nomadic seducer, digital nomad guy to living in one city, in one place, being in a long-term relationship with one woman. And I can confirm that while my freedom has technically decreased it really frees up a lot of mental hard drive to be able to focus on meaningful things when I'm not constantly worrying about which city, which country I'm going to go to next, 
where I'm going to find my next apartment and whether I'm going to try to hook up with Anna or Irena in the coming weekend. In the book, he espouses this mindset philosophy, which makes pretty good sense. It's not particularly uh, original. If you're familiar with the principles of Stoicism, you'll be familiar with a lot of the ideas, such as accepting your negative emotions, and in fact, that you should get quite comfortable with your negative emotions, along with pondering the potential worst possible outcome to whatever situation you're in, to whatever the consequences might be, and getting comfortable with the idea of suffering and possible negativity in the future, that this is a a hack for clarity, right? And then also accepting that life is nonstop pain and discomfort, and that instead of trying to avoid pain, that what you should do is try to choose your problems. Ask yourself, what types of problems do I want to have? One section I liked in the book, he was talking about meditating on death. That might sound a little bit weird if you've never done it, but I've often heard that this is a real life hack for, for uh, happiness, clarity, better long-term decision making, is that you want to meditate and think about your own death And some people will actually go as far as going to a cemetery and just sitting down in the cemetery around all the dead people and thinking and pondering and meditating on death. And that this is something that releases you uh, with a real sense of clarity in life. So this is something I want to try. He talks about it here. Whether it be through mastering an art form conquering a new land, gaining great riches, or simply having a large and loving family that will live on for generations, all the meaning in our life is shaped by this innate desire to never truly die. Confronting the reality of your own mortality is important because it obliterates all the crappy, fragile, superficial values in life. Yet, in a bizarre, backwards way, Death is the light by which the shadow of all life's meaning is measured. This acceptance of my death, this understanding of my own fragility, has made everything easier. Untangling my addictions, identifying and confronting my own entitlement, accepting responsibility for my own problems, suffering through my fears and uncertainties, accepting my failures and embracing rejections. It has all been made lighter by the thought of my own death. Some people might ask, is Mark Manson red-pilled? This was a question that I actually stumbled upon on on Quora once, and given some of my experience with him and familiarity with his work, I, I, I gave this some thought and I pondered this. And in The Matrix, there's this really classic scene, right, where Morpheus offers Neo a red pill or a blue pill. And the red pill is going to show him the ghastly, enslaved state of humanity, whereas the blue pill 
will transport him back into the drab, mediocre comfort of his life as an office drone. And red pill has become a meme to kind of uh, stand for any idea or content that is kind of fundamentally challenging to the forces, uh, the institutions, the hierarchies that loom over us. It might be the state, it might be predatory capitalism, established religion, or encroaching cultural Marxism. I would say that Mark Manson and the subtle art are sort of red-pilled. They're, they're purple-pilled, if, if you will. The book commits the benign violation of using the F-word quite a lot, but other than that, it is very mainstream. It would not have been published by a big five publisher, HarperCollins, and make it to the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, if it was really red-pilled, it would be banned by Amazon. However, a red pill is not always what you need. There is some value in the mainstream personal development, in the mainstream blue-pilled thought sphere, if you will. Not everything mainstream is totally fallacious or uh, a conspiracy that's meant to keep you from thriving. And I'll add a little bit of cultural commentary here. Ever since I saw this book come out, I was a little bit skeptical of it because it has an F word right there in the title of the book, right there in your face. And this just kind of struck me as uh, being kind of faux edgy and committing a, a benign violation, doing something that's not really politically incorrect, but that's going to be just offensive enough to get it a little up there in the radar. And I think it says something kind of disappointing about our culture that we take uh, this phrase, I don't give a fuck. And it's a really, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a really basal type of uh, phrase. You know, it's something that you yell at your buddy when you're drunk, or uh, I don't know, maybe you'll yell it at someone who's yelling at you in traffic, or something like that. And I think it's a disappointing commentary on the state of the culture that this book with that title ended up being as popular as it is. In conclusion on this book, I would say that if you are unfamiliar with Stoicism, but you're kind of enticed by this idea, I would say go and give this book a read because it does a pretty good job of encapsulating a lot of Stoic principles and making them really relevant in the, uh, modern, in, in the modern parlance. But if you're familiar with Stoicism, if you've read some of the books about Stoicism and you've already got that going on, you can pass on this. Well, that's my thoughts on the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I look forward to a continued conversation with you.